Section 4 of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Section 4 Julie Fort looked athwart pink curtains at the slanting rain. She was disappointed in the weather, and the pink silk cried out upon her hopes. She had wanted a day as cheaply cheerful as the curtains, a day with no implications or responsibilities, a day that led you nowhere, that bore no relation to fact. Of the heady cup of the times, Julie had drunk only the froth. The real juice of the grape had never reached her lips. She had, despite Pessy John's opinion, no ideas, but her nostrils and her palate had been stung by the effervescence of the wine. Her attitude to life was the by-product of all that ferment. Julie had demanded social regeneration, along startling lines, as loudly as any of the sisterhood to which she had somewhat ignorantly belonged, though for their violent logic she cared little, and of it understood nothing. The crowd suffered her because she was pretty, was good-tempered, was on her own, was clever with her brush. Most of them never knew that she was drifting morbidly. When the other girls demanded the ballot, Julie demanded it too, but what she really wanted was a chance to do a lot of the things her mother would have died of her doing, without paying the price. She was by no means vicious. She merely hated the sense of bonds. She had absolutely no power of discerning essentials, and her characteristic demonstration against conservatism would probably have been to smoke a cigarette in church. It certainly would have had no more sense than that. She read all the young English novelists, and gathered from them that lust is more than half of love. Bernard Shaw would have been pained, though probably not surprised, to know what she inferred from some of his best paradoxes, she knew that the world was vastly different from the world of gentle conceptions out of which, five years before, her mother, Cordelia Wheaton's girlhood friend, had opportunely faded. It was a world in which you could kick your heels and be respected for it. Her group had good hygienic reasons for kicking your heels. It was the best exercise possible for the body politic. Julie kept under cover of those reasons— which she never understood, and kicked hers ecstatically. Most of her friends railed at bonds of any sort, austerely, on principle, without desire. Julie objected to bonds precisely as she objected to stays, which she never wore. It is a question whether her crowd would have put up with the brainless youth of her if she had not had the uncanny gift of caricature. Women seldom make good caricaturists, it was as unnatural, as masculine of her, as it would have been to be a good mechanic. Moreover, the gift suggests brains, a sense of humor, convictions, all sorts of things that Julie had not. She simply knew like a shot what could be done with the line. She saw the implicit grotesqueness of all faces, and her hand never went back on her. When Miss Wheaton, for the sake of lavendered memories, enriched Julie Fort, the girl gave out to her friends that she was going to Paris. No one, of course, had a word to say. 
People who paint or draw always go to Paris if they can. Her friends were as conventional about that as the generation before them. They feasted Julie, and Julie feasted them, talking very little, but sketching them with her wicked pencil while they ate and drank and laughed. The sketches were preserved in almost every case, though Paul Rennert, slightly drunk, made a solemn pilgrimage after the party broke up to the East River and flung his portrait into the muddy water. Paul cared nothing for Julie's gift, though he had the sense to be insulted by what she had done with his face, but he took Julie herself very seriously. So did Andre Henkel, and he has Julie's portrait of him to this day, framed in his study. Both men wanted her, in such different ways that it is hard to use the same verb to express it. Andre has got on since those days, making his mark. Witness the walls on which the smudged caricature hangs. But Julie could not foresee Andre, or wait through the long cantos, for his success in the twentieth book. Andre himself saw early that she moved in Anapes and would be a fragment finishing in suggestive asterisk. Miss Wheaton, moving among her memories, had foreseen nothing. Bessie John had come nearer it than anyone else, but even Bessie was handicapped by her new vision of life. Mentally she cast Julie from her before she took time to understand. Julie went on, the scrap heap along with the mission furniture. It was characteristic of Julie that she never for an instant contemplated investing her little capital and living on the income thereof. She planned instead to use up her principal slowly but relentlessly, anything might come round the corner. She had a gift. Meanwhile she was avid of the present. Life for a little should be as gay as she could make it. She would work, but just enough to give zest to her fun. Julie went at the matter of living those first months in Paris, in the corrupted temper of the aesthete. Most of the young people she frequented worked without a sure knowledge of where next year's if not next month's, rent would come from. Julie was grateful to be lifted above them in this matter. Sordid suspense had no place among the condiments she craved. She preserved her faculty of fear for finer uses, all emotional. Julie intended to encounter life in Paris. She was young enough to spell it with a capital letter, and reckless enough to greet the Rubicon, that small and muddy stream, with a cheer— Today she stamped her foot at the rain. Gold in her purse had made her impatient of delays. She had bought, in six months, so many hitherto inaccessible things, it irritated her that she could not buy sunlight. There was nothing to do with Paul Rennert when he came. Together they had exhausted all the resources of her studio. There was not a new thing to do in it, not a new place to sit, not a new festivity to invent. The romance of Paul's having followed her across the Atlantic had grown a little stale. She intended to use him again and yet again. She did not intend to drop him until she had squeezed him dry. Julie's mind was not large, and, as I have said, her mental motions were jerky. A woman who at any given moment held more of the future in her hands would have looked beyond Paul Rennert, 
if only because he had belonged with her in New York, would have prepared slowly another drama for herself, finding totally new characters for the totally different scene. All that Julie had accomplished was to cease to be afraid of him. In New York he had always frightened her. Now she had far more money than he, though Paul had been the moneyed one of their indigent group. Once or twice, here in Paris, she had lent him a hundred francs. She did not know how it would be between them in the end. But she must get through with Paul before she went on, and of course some time she must get back to work. She had given away, as mementos, things she could have sold, liking the praise, liking the pose of the rich amateur. But what should she do with Paul to-day? He could not take her to Madon as they had planned. The evening could be managed, but the people they knew worked in the daytime. None was such an idler as Julie. Delicious not to be mounting the stairs of editorial offices, delicious to wear expensive clothes. But what, oh dear Lord in heaven, what to do? Even if she had felt like sending Paul away and working on the Rue de la Paix series, she could not, for sheer spite, have so acquiesced in the weather. Julie would have stuck out her tongue in all seriousness at Atropos, and Paul Rennert was late. He should, she rather felt, have been bemoaning the rain on her stairs an hour before she condescended to get up. Rennert came at last. He gave three knocks, and Julie opened to him. To spite the weather, for she wasted time on these impotent gestures, she had dressed for the storm, and Rennert found homespun, where he had expected to be confronted with a kimono. "'Ready for Moudon?' he grinned. "'Damn Moudon!' Julie swore. Of course they all did, but she did it conscientiously and badly, and Rennert discouraged it. "'Don't,' he sighed. "'Would a cigarette help?' "'No,' said Julie. "'I've smoked too long and too much, as you know. "'They're a habit, they're not a comfort. "'I'm so bored I could scream, "'and this is the dullest town.' "'Paul Rennert wrinkled his dark face. "'Depends. "'I like it, in fair weather or foul. "'But, of course, you—' "'Well, I go on.' Oh, nothing, my child. Seated on a couch, he cleaned a pipe elaborately. Only, you know, you are neither one thing nor the other. How can you expect to be happy? Meaning? Well, meaning this. He sucked at his pipe exhaustively and finally lighted it. You don't work and you don't play. You muddle along. You don't know what you want. I do. No, you don't. You couldn't tell me before I counted ten. You see, you don't really care about your work. You've no morals of any sort. I am still bored. Julie regarded him ominously. Sorry, but it's true, so you oughtn't to be bored. You could do stunning things if you put your nose to the grindstone. But you never will. You'll dash off little things that make us weep with joy, but you won't tackle anything that would mean trouble. So we have to count you out on the serious side. You haven't got any long hopes and vast thoughts, not one. My work's my own affair. That Rue de la Paix series is going to be ripping. 
You've said so for three months. That's my affair, she repeated sharply. But a series of satiric sketches, however good, can't be the whole of life. I want to be amused. I want to be interested. I want to live. Well, Paul Rennert looked away from her at an empire desk he had helped her to buy. You aren't in love with anyone, and except for love or work, you can't expect to be amused. I would rather die than marry, said Julie listlessly. Who said marry? Do you see any black silk stock round my neck? I mean, you've never had a big emotion. All very pretty and sweet of you. But what do you expect? You can't be inside and outside at the same time. I do my best, but on my word, Julie, you're hard to suit. What do you mean by your best? Stage managing this children's pantomime you call your life? How do you expect me to get results? You seem to think that if you live without a chaperone, you have fulfilled all the requirements of drama. You mean I ought to get up an affair with someone, like Aileen and her little Russian? Thanks. When I see a man I like well enough, you see plenty of men you like well enough, Rennert replied coolly. But you don't want to. I can't make a grand passion drop on you out of the blue, can I? He watched her profile very closely as he spoke. Quite right, doubtless. Only, if you won't give the passion that's in you either to work or to any human relation, why blame me? Or Paris. If I were you, I'd go home and get brought out in society. Thank you, but somehow it doesn't even amuse me to be insulted. I don't insult you unless for your good. You've got to buck up, Julie. Would you guarantee me success if I took up with one of these men? Paul Rennert rose and drummed on the windowpane with his fingers. He spoke only when he had achieved the correct shade of weariness. Oh, Julie, you have a rotten mind. Julie Fort flushed at this. I face facts. I call a spade a... You call a spade a muckrake. You don't seem to think of other conceivable uses for it. As for facing facts, you've never faced one in your silly life. Paul Rennert had faced facts, perhaps not always in the most admirable temper, but to that extent he felt himself better than Julie. I've had hard times, she was plaintive. Yes, you have, but you've never been really hungry. You've only eaten bad food instead of good. Is it your idea that I must starve my way to a soul? Not a bit of it. Only, so far as I see, you don't get any real fun out of your money, any more than if you were a fashionable nobody. You haven't bought a single real thing with it yet. Clothes are real. Julie passed her hand over the rough surface of her skirt. Paul Rennert brought his fist down upon the sill. No, they're not. Not the way you use them. You stop at making yourself pretty. Isn't that good in itself? As far as it goes. But you don't think, do you, that a pretty woman was made to be looked at from a distance? If it never goes farther than that, she hasn't accomplished anything. Yet you say I have a rotten mind. I wouldn't mind your being shocked if you were shocked, you know, he threw in. 
but of all the amorphous anomalous creatures why do we bother with you i wonder because you're pretty and because the big couturier in your rue de la paix series is as good as hogarth he began irreverently to whistle the taste of the sugar on her tongue was presently sweet to her as he had known it would be i might stay at home and work on the mormon millionaire but there was no muscle of intention in her flabby phrase then i'll get along sorry about moudon some other day he gathered himself for departure stop julie rested her clever hands on her slender hips and faced him i shall scream if you leave me here with nothing to do you'll scream if i stay yes i shall i'm going to get out you'd be tiresome screaming oh she turned from him isn't there anything we can do anything we can buy paul rennert laughed grimly not with your money she might have retorted but it was of the essence of her feeling for him that she did not in any vulgar way what's the matter with my money if you had known old cordelia wheaton you'd know it wasn't tainted it's tainted by the way you use it in heaven's name what have i done with it that's just it you haven't done anything what's money for except to mock the stars with will money buy weather yes if it's expended to that end julie looked at rennert in sheer wonder she was sometimes slow in the uptake he returned her gaze very steadily for a moment but turned away when he saw that his meaning was penetrating her brain paris lyon mediterranee said julie very slowly then she too turned away well paul rennert shrugged gallically what's money for you can't buy weather at cartier's but you can go where the weather suits you that's mocking the stars if you like julie fort was silent why does it shock you he asked after an interval nothing could be more conventional than going to the riviera when paris is dreary and you call that mocking the stars hands in his pockets head tilted back he looked at her as near as it as you'll ever get with your ideas sportier anyhow than sticking on where you're bored it's a gesture at least what do you know about my ideas everything i've already told you she liked him very much better than any of the new people better than any of the future acquaintances she not very clearly foresaw it spoke for the conventionality in julie which renner taunted her with that she liked him the better because he reeked of home she liked him indeed well enough for anything his cool dark face his breadth of shoulder and slimness of waist his easy insolence which had no taint of mere male condescension all these spoke to her nerves nerves that in julie and her kind were the modern substitute for sentiment my dear paul you seem to think i ought to throw my bonnet over the windmill my dear julie there are no bonnets any more and no windmills no of course not julie replied loyally for the young of our day run mad over formulae and paul rennert had just enunciated a pet formula of their crowd not sex but the formula is the modern mephistopheles 
it is borne in upon the intelligent young that they must have the courage of their emotions in spite of everything in spite even of not having the emotions but she went on there's no point even in doing that whatever you call it unless you happen to want to is there not the least bit in the world no point in doing anything unless you want to if you're free it's beastly hard on the people who don't want anything though isn't it that's why i'm so sorry for you you can't seem to get up a desire of respectable size nor will you live in the moment you look before and after and pine for what is not you're about two liter capacity with one liter contents i don't see any way out of it you won't use your beauty julie pricked up an ear he had never called it beauty before you won't use your talent you're bored with almost everything chiefly the weather well i advise you to get rid of the weather in the only way known to man and you won't even do that you are a trial julie and no man who wasn't crazy about you would stand it for a moment even i am almost fed up with it good-bye she took no notice of his farewell what in the world my dear paul have you done with your life if it comes to that have you a supreme desire and if you have have you set to work to achieve it you've always been a drifter so far as i know yes but i haven't any money at least not enough to mock the stars with it doesn't take money to work or to love those wonderful things you were recommending to me oh doesn't it but i do the other thing i live in the day and incidentally i have given some happiness don't worry about me my dear one of his sentences brought a flush to julie fort's cheek yes she liked him very much we can at least go and get our dejeuner she said when the flush had cooled it's high time the way we've been quarrelling here wait a bit julie disappeared into her bedroom paul rennert listened to the rattle of silver things the tinkle of crystal bottles the swish of garments while he waited presently in an interval of silence he crossed the studio to the curtain door i say julie he called let me see the flamingos i never have since we chose them in the shop oh her voice sounded preoccupied all right wait a minute the bed isn't made yet and it needs sunlight for the flamingos but i'll rake up the fire the voice trailed off in a moment julie's hat appeared round the edge of the curtain come along then she was ready for the street and was pulling on her gloves paul rennert pushed aside the curtain and stepped into the bedroom he surveyed its small extent noting every detail finally he threw back his head and laughed joyously i say i had no idea how funny they'd be those creatures don't you lie in bed and shriek every morning when you wake up he knelt down beside the bed which julie had hastily covered with a flame-colored quilt laid his head on a pillow and stared around three walls at the frieze the flamingos were funny marching round the small square room above the white dado in every conceivable attitude of self-consciousness 
the designer had insulted each individual flamingo in a different way taking from them all morality and leaving them only their unimpeachable color there was not a single repeat it was a gorgeous and sly procession paul rennert from his uncomfortable position gazed rapt i've named them all julie laughed herself from the door come on paul i'm hungry Rennert got up and followed her out of the room, stopping an instant to pat one flamingo. Aileen has doves, he remarked in the studio. Stupid as can be, but Aileen is a fool. I thought she was a sensible woman, not like me. Julie's hand was on the door latch, but she turned back to utter her retort. Oh, that, yes, but Aileen's not up to you otherwise. Doves! You can almost hear them coo. I say it's raining black cats with white tails. I'll go call a taxi. You wait here. And by the way, Julie, when we've had some food, there's something important I want to tell you. Don't let me forget. He bolted out to fetch the taxi. You like sweet white wine. I know you do, Paul Rennert complained half an hour later. "'and I can't afford two kinds, but one can't drink water. "'You are a nuisance, Julie,' he gave the order with a wry face. "'I'll pay for my own, and you can drink something else, thanks. "'We'll go Dutch, anyhow.' "'Rennert put his elbows on the table and clasped his hands. "'Julie, I wouldn't marry for the sake of possessing Aphrodite on Segonos. "'You would drive me out of my mind.' Why do you behave like two shop-girls at child's? I'll pay as long as I've got any money, and when I haven't, you may pay. But what you call Dutch is the last limit. It takes all the fun out of it. It's like keeping household accounts in a greasy little book. What's the good of a meal when you're doing fractions all the time? I'd rather drink seawater, if necessary. Apart from this sulky instant, they breakfasted gaily. But as Julie was lighting Paul's final cigarette for him, she asked soberly, "'What was the important thing you had to say to me?' "'Oh, that. Well, Julie, you know your sense of color isn't up to your feeling for lying, don't you? I've often told you that, haven't I? You won't be insulted.' He seemed anxious. "'Yes, but there's no color to speak of in this homespun, Shirley.' "'Bother the homespun. It's the peignoir over the chair. Chez vous, you know. That pink with the flamingos. Green, Julie, you should have had green. I don't care how many pink ones you have in general, but it makes me quite sick to think of your wearing pink among the flamingos. White would be best, but I suppose that isn't practical.' He sighed. "'You're no good at anything, ultimately and finally, are you, dear?' with all your money? But do get a green one, to please me. His eyes roamed and grew absent. He bowed conventionally to someone at the far end of the room. Julie did not answer. They got up and left the restaurant. Where are you going? Do you want a cab? Yes, please. Julie's voice was crisp. I'm doing some errands. You might come at tea time. I know you hate it, but I'll give you coffee. You've no engagements, of course. Of course not. Today was Moudon. 
Be sure to come, and don't turn up with the crowd. I want to talk to you. If you see Aileen, you might tell her how nice the flamingos are. She thinks I don't know anything about decoration. Shall I make a point of it? Don't make a point of anything, ever, for God's sake. And Julie stepped into the cab, having for once succeeded in being cryptic for Paul Rennert. End of section 4